Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. You may have seen a recent article from the Associated Press that was called The Autopsy, A Fading Practice Revealed the Secrets of COVID-19. One of the pathologists featured in that article is Dr. Amy Rapkevich, and she's my guest today. We're going to talk about her path to becoming a pathologist. We'll talk about that AP article and the paper she co-authored about autopsy findings from COVID-19 patients. Then after the show, I've got a trailer from my interview with Dr. Judy Melanick and TJ Mitchell. But right now, here's Dr. Amy Rapkevich. Let's go back to your time in medical school. And uh, I like to ask this question of most of the guests I have on the show. When did you first become interested in pathology? So um, it's interesting. I had an aunt who was a uh, a pathology resident um, that at one point during growing up, she had a video on autopsy. And oh. I remember being at her apartment and watching the the video. You know, it was very sort of a sterile, you know, uh, right. video instructional type of thing. And How old were you at the time? I think I was in my teens um, okay. at the time. And I was just, I just loved it. I just thought, my God, this is so interesting. It was like, almost like a baking show, you know? And I just thought, mm -hmm. wow, this is, this is great. Um, and so I got interested in medicine really through a couple of the, the physicians in my family. And um, I always loved science. And I think that along with my, my father and mother, um, my father worked for the Museum of Natural History in the city and um, I was just a fixture with him at the museum pretty much growing up. My mom is a teacher and uh, also just, you know, spending a lot of time in the classroom with her. I found that pathology was just that perfect combination of science, medicine, yeah. education. Yeah. So that's how it goes. Okay. You mentioned the Museum of Natural History. What was your favorite part of that when you were there? You know, now I think I can I can um, sort of explain it a little bit better. At the time, I don't think I realized, but so much of it was about the narrative of the individual specimens. And so, you know, and their relationships to one another, you know, the complex idea of phylogeny just just made me want to learn more. And so I loved learning about sort of the individual story behind each specimen. And what I really liked about, you know, they call it like the, the, um, the dead, the dead zoo, you know, because mm -hmm. the animals stay still, you know, so it's like, you can really get a look at them. <laughs> okay. And I really, I really enjoyed the fact that you can really study them because they're still and, right. uh, and, that just transferred directly to the idea of pathology for me. And I, the museum itself, you know, the, the scientists and the, and the, everybody who worked there just always was willing to, you know, open up and talk about either what it is that they're studying or, or something related or some, you know, sort of sociologic, uh, 
piece of, of fact about, you know, something that that's going on. And, and I just thought how interesting that was. And it, it just drew me in. I love a, I love a story. I love storytelling. I think mm-hmm. medicine is just, you know, exactly what you're doing. You know, the storytelling is just one of the, the critical educational strategies that we use as, as, you know, people in medicine to, to really help people understand various aspects of what we're trying to, you know, work with. You went on to do your residency at the National Cancer Institute, which that's part of the National Institutes of Health, right? Yes. In, in Washington, D.C.? Yes. It's in Bethesda, Maryland. Yes. Okay. Okay. I, I didn't realize you could actually go and do a residency there. So <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, let's start there then. How did you, how did you discover that? Um, you know, I discovered it basically when I was filling out the application for pathology residency, I basically checked off almost every box on the East Coast. And that mm-hmm. was one of the boxes. And, um, you know, they called me for an interview and I went down there to visit the place and, and then, it was just an amazing place. I mean, it's a very niche residency program in the sense that they don't have sort of the typical specimens that you would think uh, of a, uh, you know, of an academic medical center. They're really focused on the current clinical trials of the time. And so the specimens that come out of that are really related to those clinical trials. However, people in clinical trials do get appendicitis, they do get, you know, rashes and this, that and the other thing. So you, you do see a wide swath of, of, of pathology, but for the most part, it's, it's limited to the, the current clinical trials at the time. It was, you know, that you have to then sort of take your elective time and use it to expand to see more of the um, traditional types of specimens that help round out your view as a pathologist. So I did rotations. And that was one of the things that I really loved about the residency is that you had a lot of, of independence and um, to, you know, use the time that you would, you know, maybe normally be quote unquote on service to do elective times to go wherever it is that you feel, you know, you're interested in. So I did a lot of electives at the AFI, the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology when it was open. I um, did electives at Memorial Sloan Kettering. I did lots of forensic pathology electives. So I really felt like I was able to create a residency program that was really suitable towards the things that I was interested in and still got a great foundation because the pathologists that are there are just amazing. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're really just truly sort of experts in their field. And, but at the same time, they're just, they're, they're great educators. So I thought it was a wonderful program. It's super small. It's only three, three residents per year. And you know, they're, they're bench to bedside. I mean, you can't get much more than that. You know, the, right. the researchers are, are literally across the hall from you. Can you talk about like what kind of clinical trials were, were going on yeah. while you were, while you were there? Sure. It was huge melanoma and renal cell carcinoma, um, oh. clinical trials at the time it, all of the immunotherapy trials were just starting. So, I remember 
doing immunohistochemical stains as a resident on things like CTLA-4 and all of these, um, you know, mark cellular, you know, surface markers that now people are getting, you know, treatments for with like, and, you know, a lot of the PDL one and things of that nature. Like mm -hmm. I, that was when I was a resident and, you know, oh, wow. we okay. were really on the forefront of, of that research, you know, most of it in the area of melanoma, but, you know, there were other, there were other studies involved. You know, there was also lots of, you know, um, diseases that you would think would be, would be going on, you know, trials involving HIV, trials involving, you know, in other infectious diseases, um, you know, mycobacterial avium infections, inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis, uh, all those things would come through the door. And so it was, as I said, it was a wide variety, but not necessarily, you know, the run of the mill specimens. You know, for example, my first appendix had metastatic melanoma in it. You know, I never really got oh, like, I have never seen that. <laughs> I never really wow. got like a ton of like typical acute appendicitis until I did my rotations in George Washington. You know, we had like a, a surgical pathology rotation in George Washington, um, GW uh, Hospital down in DC. And that's where I saw like, you know, more run-of-the-mill specimens like cholecystitis and appendicitis and things like that. You know, we really didn't see a placenta unless someone gave birth in the cafeteria. You know, it's just, okay. we, we really had that experience. Okay. Um, then you went on to do actually two fellowships. So the first one was in cytopathology and then in forensic pathology, which seems like a unusual combination. Oh, it is. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So, so why did you decide to do the two fellowships instead yeah. of just the one? So when I was in the, the NIH, I had gotten accepted to the forensic pathology fellowship in, in New York City. And I was super excited because I thought that that was going to be sort of my direct um, line. And then as I, as I was moving through the residency, I really, I had a great mentor who was a cytopathologist. Andrea Body, and she really showed me sort of how fine needle aspiration really brought you pretty, you know, very close to patients and was a, a real boon in terms of being able to give a, the clinicians very rapid, accurate, um, you know, results so that they could start treatment. And, you know, I was really intrigued by it. And, and I saw a lot of parallels between autopsy and FNA in the sense that you're dealing with the patient directly. Um, oh, sure. Okay. And that appealed to me. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll do, you know, cytopathology first, and then I'll go on and, and do forensics. And, and I did, I, I came back home to New York and I did cytopathology at Bellevue NYU. And then, you know, I had gotten offered a job in Bellevue and I decided to, you know, start working. And then I realized that I had to go back and do a forensic pathology fellowship because I, I really needed to sort of close the loop on, on my initial intention. And I also felt strongly that 
you know, I had to have a strong background in autopsy pathology because that's, that's really where my true passion was, was, was in autopsy pathology. So your interest then in, in forensic pathology, does that go all the way back to the National History Museum? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. I mean, there's just so many parallels, I think, between, you know, um, anthropology, forensics, paleontology. Um, yeah. I think if I if I wasn't a pathologist, I'm not sure exactly what I would be, but probably somewhere in that that realm. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. Just recently you were featured in an article uh, from the Associated Press. And then you were also, you did an interview with CNN uh, for your work in performing autopsies on patients with COVID related deaths. Now I want to get into that article and, and the interview a little bit, but before that, can we talk about at the beginning, because you're in New York city at the beginning of COVID pandemic, I, w- I want to get into like, what were, what kind of adjustments did you have to make as far as performing autopsies sure. and extra precautions and things like that? Yeah, sure. So um, where my hospital actually is part of the NYU system, it's, it's located at in Mineola, which is on Long Island, but I'm, I was in, okay. New, I was in New York city for 15 years bef- before that I was the autopsy director. So okay. I think that part of, of, of pathology, one of the great things about pathology is that we are a small group, relatively speaking. And I think that we leverage that in times like these. So when this started coming out very quickly, the listservs that I'm a part of and the people that I reached to, to consult with, we all started talking about how we would handle these types of cases. And, you know, it's, it's pretty typical for, for, for people, you know, that do autopsies to think about sort of those types of things. And so it wasn't a big stretch to sort of categorize the risk of COVID in terms of, you know, postmortem examination. And most of us felt that, you know, obviously it's, it's either respiratory or droplet, you know, and, Mm -hmm. Even if it's either one of those, you know, you'd have to think about aerosolization and, you know, how do you protect yourself against aerosolization? The big question was whether or not you need a biosafety lab level three or if a two plus would be sufficient. You know, TB is sort of a two plus range. Things that that start to get into the three or, or even higher are, you know, hantavirus, Marbug, all those other sort of um, viruses. It didn't right. seem that from what we knew at the time that COVID was at that level. And so most of us felt confident based on what we know about regular coronavirus, as well as the, the Middle East respiratory virus or the first um, SARS virus. That, he, that it was probably in a two plus range. And so based on that, we sort of start to fashion what that would look like. I think some of the added things that we did that I, I felt, you know, were appropriate were things like, you know, washing, washing the body down with bleach, limiting the amount of people in the room, making adjustments in maybe how you, you know, a, remove bone, um, things of that nature. And then your full PPE with, you know, N95s, face shields, 
you know, how you double glove and, and, you know, maybe mm-hmm. tape, tape your wrists, wear, wear full shoe protection, that kind of thing. And then how you doff, you know, your PPE when you leave, leave the room just to make sure that you don't contaminate yourself in that process. Um, mm-hmm. Those were, those were the biggies I think that, that we did in terms of figuring out how to deal with, with the virus. Okay. I remember back when, you know, when, when CJD was a pretty big scare and we had those, uh, they came up with those head drapes yeah. for, for autopsies. It was a, did you have to use something like that so as we well? We didn't have a drape in, in the autopsy room that I'm working in. And we also didn't have a, um, you know, the shroud with the, with the vacuum. So we actually mm. chose yeah. not to remove the brains until we were able to secure something that would work. And that was okay. But yeah, you could use the shroud with the vacuum. I think that's a reasonable approach. Um, some people chose to, you know, have running water going over the oscillating saw. Um, oh, okay. You know, and, and that also works as well with a, with a wet cloth over it. it. You know, I think all of those things are reasonable approaches to mitigate risk. Okay, that makes sense. As far as the the AP article and the CNN interviews, so how did they? How did this come to be? Like, how did they contact you? And- yeah, I don't. I don't really know. To be quite honest with you, I think it's just a matter of you know we most hospitals do have a, a public relations people, and and there was a woman here mm-hmm. who was, you know, um, when we released the the article, she you know put me in contact with a couple of of newspaper venues, but they were local. Most of them were all local, you know? So I think then what happens is that it's just word of mouth from there on. Um, okay. And, you know, sort of the social media thing. I'm right. not really on social media, so I don't really know, but yeah. Uh, I can tell you that article made the rounds on Twitter. Yeah. So I, just recently I, I started a Twitter account at the, you know, asking of my residents, but it's like me and my mom. It's like my followers. <laughs> There's not okay. many people on my Twitter following. Had you done anything as far as news articles before? I've done a couple. Yeah. I mean, I had a, I had a one in 8 million article that was done by the New York Times a long time ago before I, so it was like maybe 10 something years ago. They were Wait, doing one, one in eight million. What, what does that mean? So they were doing these articles about people in New York City that had interesting jobs. And, oh, okay. um, and my, you know, I was at a, I was actually at a, um, a cocktail party and, uh, I was talking to somebody who was a, you know, a, a plus one to somebody else. And, and, uh, you know, a week after that, I got a request. Oh, would you mind to be part of that? And it turns out she was she worked for the Times, and she thought that I would be a good story. And so we did this one in eight million, where it's like a photo journalistic piece where they would follow you around. And and he actually accompanied me to an autopsy, and and we talked about you know autopsy and and mm-hmm. and that sort of thing in New York City. Oh, it was wow. fun. Okay. Yeah, it was really fun. It was great. That's, that sounds fun. And that's good uh, exposure for the field. How did the reporter feel about the uh, being in with the autopsy? Yeah, he was fine. He was like a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. And he just, he's been like, 
in, you know, hardcore war. And so it was for him, it wasn't really a thing. Oh, okay. Let's talk a little more about the AP article. You talk in, in it about the finding of thrombosis, multi-organ thrombosis. And, and I'd like to know at the time when you were finding the, this, how, how surprising was that? I think it was pretty surprising because, you know, I've done a, a number of of patients that have died with viral illnesses, you know, influenza or other types of viruses, CMV, mm-hmm. you know, most of the time when you do those cases, you expect, you know, the lungs to be significantly affected and you might expect some shock type findings and other organs, but it, not to the extent that we saw it with COVID that we're seeing it with COVID. Um, mm-hmm. And, I think that the surprising thing was just, well, two things, you know, very rarely, I think, or this is probably the only time in my career that I'll be, you know, and I use the word opportunity in the best sense possible, where I'll have the opportunity to pretty much only do cases of patients of the same disease process in a cohort. Okay. And what that allows, you know, what that allowed me to do was to just focus on those findings in those, those people and really have the time to sort of really direct my attention towards, okay, how, how do we answer the questions at hand and how do we explain what we're seeing? You know, trying to not be, not be biased. Obviously, you know, you have sort of like the bias of, you know, you're only seeing one thing at a time. You don't want to necessarily explain it all by the virus. Right. Um, but that, you know, being that as it may, I think it was an opportunity. And when you're doing these autopsies and you're c- consistently seeing the same findings, you really are sort of blown away at like, what is the disease process happening here? You know, when I would take the liver out and you'd cut it, you know, every, every vascular opening was just filled with clots you know, and that, that's just dramatic, you know, it's, it's really dramatic. And at the same time, you're seeing, you know, clotting in the lungs, you know, clotting in the ventricular chambers of the heart, clotting Mm -hmm. in weird places, you know, veins of the heart. And then when you get the the slides the next day, and again, or not the next day, a couple days, the fact was that the histology lab at the time was actually not busy because all of the elective surgeries were, were turned off. And so, right. you know, it was basically only the autopsy service that was functioning. And so, you know, you were sort of, you know, getting things at a faster pace, you know, seeing the slides faster and, and, and you would then, then you saw all the microvascular clotting and, you know, you knew that there had to be some sort of connection that wasn't just sort of, oh, this is this is a person who's dying of downstream, you know, DIC or something like that. I mean, although that could be a mechanism, it was different than what even you saw in patients that had things like disseminated intravascular coagulation for other reasons. Mm-hmm. As you're going along and you're seeing this in case after case, how long did it take for you to realize, you know what, I think we're on to something here? I think it was about five cases. And okay. it it was the combination of those cases and then other 
you know, other people sort of popping up on the listserv or, or, you know, my friend in the, in the city, Kristen Thomas, she's the, the autopsy director at Tish. We were, we were comparing notes pretty, pretty quickly early on and, and, um, having, having similar, similar outcomes. Mm-hmm. One other thing in the art, in the article, you mentioned you expected there to be myocarditis and there really wasn't like that was, and then was unexpected. Can you explain that? So I think because the clinicians would see the changes on echo bedside echo and other things, uh, you know, EKG findings that they were interpreting as myocarditis you know how it is with 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 how that goes is that mm-hmm. you know clinicians are making the best medical opinion at the time based on the information that they have and right. you know it's not tissue and so you know as we all know you know tissue is the issue and it's and it's you you don't know until you really look at the tissue and myocarditis is a hard diagnosis you know it it's not common let's just say it's not something that people see all the time um even pathologically, it can be a hard diagnosis. It can be patchy. You have to submit a lot of sections. So, so when when we talk about things like that, it's one of those those areas where you really want to make sure that you're you're excluding it with you know properly, mm-hmm. um, and that involves you know lots of studies. It involves examining the heart, you know doing 20, 30 sections of the heart, making sure that you're excluding all other causes, that kind of thing. And, you know, to this, to this moment, I think in the literature based on, you know, talking to people as well as what's being published, I I don't think that it's a, it's a common pathology of COVID. It may happen in some patients, totally. But I think when a patient presents with, things that look like myocarditis clinically, you have to consider other diagnoses as well and potentially treat for those as well. You know, like very, like lots of microvascular thrombosis and injury, you know? So I think that's where the anticoagulation comes in as part of that protocol. You mentioned papers that have been published. You actually co-authored one uh, that was published in eClinical Medicine, uh, which I'm going to link in the show notes so everyone can read it. But it discusses the the autopsy findings, kind of an extension of the uh, AP article. So how did, for publishing this paper, how did that project begin? So it's so funny that you started the conversation with the NIH, because at the time, you know, when I think of all things weird and unusual, I always call my friends back at the NIH. (laughs) And so I called my friend Stefania Pitaluga, who, you know, she's like a world-class hematopathologist and just lovely person. And I said, listen, you know, I need your help. It's these cases have all these findings. And, you know, my lab here in Mineola doesn't really have the capacity to do the stains that would be needed to answer some of the questions. And okay. so I said, you know, and I caught, and I, it was her and, and Dr. David Kleiner, who's the autopsy director there, who actually taught me autopsy as a resident. And we we had multiple phone conversations and webexes and it was the most i've seen them in in you know 15 years and it was like we just picked up where we started and and basically they were just so generous and and you know said that they would that they would be willing to be a part of it 
and we just started to collaborate. Okay. In that paper, you discussed the, you found the, the megakaryocytes in the heart. Yeah. Um, okay. Can you talk about the significance of that? So when I was looking at the slides, you know, like I said, those couple of patients, those five patients, you know, when I first looked at them, I don't know if I, if I, it struck me, but once I really sort of like meditatively sat down and decided that I was going to just like pour my attention on these slides in like a, a chunk of time, you know, just looking at all the lungs in, in the patients, all the hearts, you know, all the kidneys, you know, selectively sort of looking at it in different sequences, I, I, I saw the megakaryocytes and I was like, you know, honestly, I was like, holy, you know, I know I'm probably going to mm-hmm. curse on your podcast, <laughs> but, and, and I was just like, wow, this is crazy. What is happening here? You know, I've been doing this for a pretty long time, looked at lots of hearts, you know, probably approaching, you know, somewhere between, you know, over a thousand, maybe uh-huh. even 2000 autopsies. And, and I've never s- saw that before. And it, I just, I just had to, you know, you just have to sort of dig in and figure out what's going on. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, it goes to show you, I think in the sense that, and I think for pathology residents, it's important. You have to just spend time with your slides. You know, you have to sort of figure out the best way for you to, you know, quietly really let your mind just concentrate on what's in front of you. And it's hard to do, it, you know, it's not easy, but it's important because that's, that's where the answers are many times, you know, although, you know, I also believe that you have that part of that is marrying it with what you talk to the clinician and you, you know, you really read the chart, you, you know, you, you show people, it's like this whole sort of Venn diagram of, of how to approach a case, but it has to start with, you know, your attention really defining what it is that you're seeing on the slide in a very objective manner. Right. You know, I had a while back, I had uh, Dr. Neil Thies on the show. Mm. Who, who actually, you might know. Um, I love Neil. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was great. And he said some, it was something like, uh, you know, you see some, some cell on a slide and you know, you're a resident, you ask, what's that? And the attending's like, oh, it's, you know, it's just there. It's, it's nothing to worry about it. And he said, you know, that's an entire research career right there in that, in that random cell. And it sounds like the, this with the megakaryocytes, you could probably do the same thing with that. Oh, you absolutely can. Yeah. I mean, it's, it really is the power of observation. I think that when you are open and you see things, you know, it's like anything else. You know, it's a little bit um, philosophical. You know, you have to you have to have your eyes open to see it. You know, so in in mm-hmm. metaphorically, you know, um, so once you do that, you know, and make that observation, then you really it gives you the the opening to to investigate it in in whatever way it needs to be investigated. So you mentioned earlier disseminated intravascular 
coagulation. So, but how is how is the thrombosis that you're seeing in these COVID patients different from DIC? You know, it's it was more of sort of a very nuanced thing in the sense that in DIC, one of the main findings that we see pathologically, I mean, there's lots of clinical differences between the two, but if you, if you were agnostic to that, the you look in places like capillaries for thrombi that are damaging the, the lining cells, the endothelial cells. And one of the things that struck me was that there was really a paucity of thrombi in the glomerulus, but there was an excess of, of thrombosis everywhere else. So it was like okay. a flip, you know, and hmm. I just didn't have a good answer for that. Why, why we weren't seeing it there. And it's not that it completely excluded it based on that one example, but it was odd. And then clinically, there's other differences in, in things like, you know, fibrinogen levels and, and some of the other, other coagulation factors that, that people look at to differentiate them. And probably it's going gonna, it's gonna to lie, the COVID-related coagulopathy is probably going to have a lot of overlaps with things like disseminated intravascular coagulation or hemolytic uremic, you know, syndrome. Um, okay. It's somewhere in there. We haven't really figured it out yet, but mm -hmm. it, it does have unique aspects to it that, that really do need to be looked at for the simple fact that hopefully they can give us some answers as to how to treat it more appropriately. Okay. Yeah. You actually, that's mentioned in the article that you say that the mechanism of the thrombosis is not yet known, but do you have any, any theories? I think, you know, still working with, so one of the amazing things that happened out of this project is when you start to talk to people about your findings, they say, oh, you should really talk to, you know, X person who's working on, you know, this process. Um, uh -huh. And so I was able to hook up with Jeff Berger and Harmony Reynolds, who are, who are at the NYU, who, who really work in cardiovascular disease, it, but in thrombosis. So by doing that, I'm, I've been meeting people who just I would never have collaborated with before, you know, and right. um, they're sort of, you know, giving their knowledge, we're sort of giving ours and, and we're really sort of, you know, making some headway. And so Jeff is looking at sort of how the platelets and the megakaryocytes are being changed or influenced by the virus and how that interaction is potentially, you know, um, being involved in, in the, in the thrombosis. And then, you know, there are other people, you know, outside of NYU and elsewhere that are looking at the complement system and how that potentially is, is influencing the coagulation. I think it's going to be a combination of those things. Um, okay. And I think the real interesting part is going to be, you know, what, what is it about, about cells like megakaryocytes that are being changed to maybe alter their physiology to become, you know, more pro-coagulant. So um, we're doing that now, I think, and, and that'll be really interesting. And Jeff, I know, has some some data that, you know, he's going to hopefully publish soon that will hopefully really help us draw some conclusions. Okay. Are they 
cardiologists or were they? They are cardiologists. They're like, you know, practicing cardiologists. They're physician scientists that have labs that really were working on coagulation related to atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease that just flipped their labs to look at COVID literally overnight. (laughs) Okay. So it seems like, you know, because of COVID and the, and the findings, there's been more collaboration kind of cross, uh, cross specialty, I guess, for, for lack of a better word, uh, which I don't want to say is, you know, COVID has caused good things, but that might be one of them. It is. I think it's part of the, you know, part of that really dedicated, uninterrupted time to spend on an, on a, a disease process. You start to you know, really find different avenues to connect with people over. And and that involved lots of collaboration. And I also think, unfortunately, but fortunately, part of the lockdown and and the ease of using things like WebEx, you're able to connect with people who you would never would have connected with before um, in, in that way, you know. So just being able to get on a WebEx, you know, with somebody you know, whenever you need to is just amazing. And I think that's been a, that's going to be a positive lasting change. You know, I was able to give, you know, WebEx presentations to many, many um, places that I would never have done that, you know, before we would have had the whole struggle of either being there or this, that, and the other thing. And, and it, it just wouldn't have happened. So that was really um, fortuitous. Yeah, I agree with that. All over the virtual presentations and the virtual learning, I, I hope that stuff stays around because it is, you know, like you said, you you can reach a much wider audience. Yeah. 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 Speaking of the collaboration, and it, this is also drawing a lot more attention to the autopsy and its importance, uh, which which I think is good because in recent years that's becoming more and more rare. So coming from a forensic pathology background what what do you think about that trend yeah i mean you know you people always have this fascination many people i should say have a fascination with autopsy investigation and forensics and things like that so i feel like it comes and goes i think it's challenging because the people that we need to sell it the most to are are within the field you know <laughs> Hmm, okay. <laughs> you know, like the regular pathology people and and I and I worry that there are still a lot of of pathologists that I don't necessarily worry, but I I think about that there are a lot of pathologists that really devalue the idea of the autopsy. And and without their buy-in, you know, I don't know how much how much better we're going to get about training our residents to be, you know, competent in autopsy. Mm-hmm. And then you have to ask yourself, does it, does it matter? You know, like unless somebody's going into forensics or does it matter or should we really think about the people, you know, who are doing hospital-based autopsies and whether or not they need advanced training? I, I don't know the answer to those questions, but those are the types of things that I am thinking about. You know, Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of pathologists who don't like the autopsy and for various reasons and see it as something that takes a lot of time and gets in the way of their daily work of looking at slides. 
and that poses a and a problem to really pushing the the idea that autopsy is important to the forefront because generally the autopsy doesn't bring in any money do you think maybe like hospital administration isn't as likely to make autopsies more important for that reason yeah i mean i think that financially it's 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 a losing it's a losing proposition so you either have to assign value to it from an educational perspective or a public health perspective to make it to make it valuable to both the the financial community as well as you know the the greater community at large and i think that's possible you know i it just has to be some sort of paradigm that you stick to, you know, and say, okay, we're going to do, we're going to do autopsies because of these reasons. And that's, that's what it's going to be. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think that there are a lot of reasons why it, it fell to the wayside, but it, 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 it's still possible to, to make sure that it has a, a more stable place in the practice of, of pathologists. Sure. It's pretty well known that there's, we've, we've got a shortage of forensic pathologists, you know, in this country and worldwide. And I wonder if coming out of the COVID pandemic, like you've heard about, you know, the, the CSI effect from years yeah. ago. And I wonder if there'll be a I don't COVID, know. COVID effect. Yeah. I mean, you know, I use, you know, I'm a forensic pathologist, but I don't really practice as in a medical legal office. Um, you know, I practice hospital-based autopsy practice. You know, I think my training as a forensic pathologist was essential to being able to handle any kind of case. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I do think that anyone who is a forensic pathologist will be infinitely, is infinitely secure in their ability to handle almost any kind of of autopsy situation. So it depends. It depends what someone's looking for. You know, most forensic offices did not do COVID autopsies because they were naturals and, and they're that, you know, they have limited resources. So not doing those cases is reasonable. You know, they're natural deaths, you know, although that there was a public health issue, um, you know, I can, I can understand that, you know, doing those cases may not have been the best decision for medical legal offices. Right. So it, it's we're, it's kind of an interesting question right now because I don't really know how this will affect the up and coming medical students who are thinking about, you know, going into pathology with an end goal of being a forensic pathologist, other than the fact that they'll, they'll potentially see that autopsy provides answers, whether it be from a medical legal perspective or, you know, a, a natural history perspective. And either way, I think it would, it would benefit the field for sure. Yeah. Okay. And I, it's just fun. I agree. <laughs> now, uh, Dr. Rapkavish, this has been a really interesting conversation. I, I appreciate you taking the time to be here. Big thanks to Dr. Rapkavich. And of course, I'll have links to uh, the article, the CNN interview, as well as the paper that she co-authored. All of that will be in the show notes. That's at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. Please remember to like and subscribe to the show. And of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. 
And if you found this episode interesting, please share it with someone else you know. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This podcast is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. Follow the link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. When you're working in pathology and laboratory medicine, there's one thing you always need, good quality scrubs. Well, Dress Med has been designing and manufacturing high quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Med, and if you use my link in the show notes, you'll be helping to support the show. Here's a trailer from my interview with Dr. Judy Melanick and TJ Mitchell. You mentioned, Dr. Melanick, that you had about 100 pages to start with. Did you have Dr. Tesca at that time? I mean, when, when did your main character, how did she develop? I did have that character. I think she had a different name initially, but uh, I, I don't remember what her original name was because she's te- Jessie for us now. But uh, yes, I did have that character. I wanted her to be a woman, a forensic pathologist who had just finished her training. So in some ways, First Cut is a little bit like a follow-up to Working Stiff, but a fictionalized one, because at the end of Working Stiff, I finished my fellowship training, and that's exactly at the time that we're picking up in Dr. Tesca's life. Right. So I I was at least trying to get her young um, and focus on the portion of uh, a forensic pathologist's career when she is still learning, and that really sharp learning curve that happens right when you get out of fellowship and you have to be independent for the first time. You have to actually apply everything that you've learned. Jesse Tesca is not based on Judy. She, there's there's things about her. <laughs> there's, th- there's things about her that are part of Judy's personality. There's things about her that are part of my personality. In some ways, she's like our naughty fifth daughter. To hear more about the book First Cut, check out episode number four of the People of Pathology podcast. And by the way, the second book in the series, Aftershock, comes out January 19th. So check that out as well.